Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jigman Freud with you. I was told earlier today by a, a press person. He's like, I really like that Jigman Freud thing. It's really entertaining. I don't know if he was doing it to kiss my ass. I don't know what was going on there. But I am glad he made that comment. Uh, JiggyJaguar.com The um, Jiggy Jag Ugh. Jesus, that sucks. I apologize. The Jiggy Jaguar app is available. JiggyJaguar.us You can stream the show live, 24-7 replay, exclusive news and programming information. Tony Michelides? We'll find it. We'll find out here in just a second. Tony Michelides, a music industry professional, former music promoter. Michelle Aids. Hello. Good afternoon, Tony. How are you? It's James Lowe with iHeartRadio and AMFM 24-7. How are you today? I'm good, James. How are you, sir? Pretty good, actually. I uh, wanted to get in touch with you today. We've got a... Uh, Great guest with us today. The all-new book, Let the Good Times Roll, will be hitting the shelves soon. And uh, Tony joins us here on the broadcast. And uh, Tony, before we really get going in this interview, I uh, have been debating with myself how to pronounce your last name. How do you pronounce your last name? Because I don't want to butcher it on the air. It's always the first question. Michael Edith. Michael Edith. Oh, one word. Good Lord. <laughs> I guarantee you'll get, get it wrong, James, because everybody says the same thing. It's the moment they're live, they get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, uh, Tony Michaelidis is with us today here in our broadcast. I would have never got that out of that. I would have never got working? that out of that. Uh, he joins us today. I can be, be Tony Low for the purposes of this. Eh? Well, that too. That too. We could make that work. Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he's with us today here in our broadcast. Now, um, let's talk about your book, Let the Good Times Roll. Tell us a little bit about this book, my friend. Well, basically, I wrote a book a few years ago, James, called um, Insights from the Engine Room, Lessons Learned from Rock and Roll. And, yes. Um, the title was a bit, a little kind of confusing for some people. I thought kind of the engine room being the place where you stoke it, you know, people would understand it, but obviously... It was a little too complex. I mean, the, the subheader, which was like lessons learned for rock and roll, is fairly self-explanatory. But a lot's yeah. happened since that time, and it's it's weird because I can kind of sell more copies of that book now than when it came out. But I kind of think like I'm. I don't write and I don't I don't sing and I don't play, but I think like an artist because I think I'm going to release Dark Side of the Moon and somebody bought my first album. It's like no, I can do that so much better now. So. I, I revisited the original book with the stories and extended on them. And then with things like last year with a lot of the people like uh, Bowie and Prince and Glenn Fry and Leonard Cohen, and these people passing on but kind of won't ever exist again, I kind of felt I had a duty to, in my own little way, to kind of keep the legacy alive, you know. 
That's um, awesome. So That's I, awesome. I went back into the storytelling. I, I love doing that. I'm open now, I think, to, to kind of write and talk. So that's kind of where I'm going. I'm going to start a podcast much in the same way as, you know, storytelling, bringing people into your world and, and not necessarily tell you when it was great, but inspiring a lot of people, um, especially millennials, I think, to kind of grow something that, that wasn't there in the age of technology. You know, this was kind of growing up in a very real world of just going and watching bands as part of your culture. You know, I could talk about that forever, but I'll spare you. <laughs> now uh tell us tell us a little bit about uh uh one one of the big things uh with you being in the the music industry and being uh being a big time deal um this whole thing with manchester people are uh uh a, a lot of people are probably going to be uh, attending concerts with some fear and different things um kind of calm some of those fears on uh, on 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 folks who might be listening and 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 you know they're they're not thinking about going to concerts anymore because of this whole thing with uh, this uh, deal with the twenty thousand fans that were packed in the Manchester Arena and this this terrorist attack. Yeah, I think um, obviously since you asked me to do this show, Jim, there's been the uh, uh, James, there's been the Manchester concert, you know, which was yes. phenomenally yeah. successful and organised in like seven days. And if there was ever kind of a classic example of how we're bringing people together and bringing artists of that stature um, to come together all in one place. I mean, I thought it was like it was like Live Aid, but almost better in a way because Live Aid took forever to organise, and this was kind of done where a lot of artists came in from different countries and stuff. It went incredibly smoothly, and the messages that they were passing on were really sincere. You know, Justin Bieber in tears and stuff, and people that are really doing something from the cause. So in answer to your question, I think it's a time where um, not just people, cities, the industry, everybody has to come together. As we're talking about this, there'll be management and agents and promoters that are all taking talking the same way. I mean, you've got to remember this thing. It happened in my home city. I'm actually from Manchester. And, oh. um, the, the, I've been to the arena so many times over the years. A, a friend of mine who was in New Order, um, was on the BBC, the, t the, the show was broadcast live, and I, I saw him being interviewed, and um, he said that he, he, his daughter was at the show, and he got the call, and I was kind of shivering in my seat just watching it, because I thought, oh my God, if that was my daughter, you know, and he got the call and rushed down to the concert. Fortunately, she was, she was okay, but she's, she was very, very kind of, you know, it did affect her for obvious reasons, and and then, you know, she went to that concert. I think a lot of those people, even the kids that come out of hospital, went to that concert. And, you know, nobody felt any fear. And the only way you can, I know it sounds all cliche, you know, but the only way you can overcome these things is where people rally around and won't be defeated. And music has an incredible way of bringing people together. It always has. I mean, you know, speaking like an elder statesman, I mean, Bob Dylan didn't stop the Vietnam War, but he made kids aware a different generation, baby boomers and stuff, made them aware of situations and stuff. And I think that will never change because there's nothing like music to take you back to a time and a place. And I've been watching gigs for 50 years and, you know, the IRA planted a bomb in Manchester and blew the centre of the city apart. I've always kind of, it's always been around me since I've been growing up, but it's never stopped me being resilient and, and, and just going about my everyday life. And I think the kids are the same. Um, and what happened last Sunday was the best thing that could have happened because it was reported everywhere in news, radio, press. And I think it, it, 
was great. I think what's got to happen is when people do go to concerts, they'll have to kind of be aware that there'll be police outside and stuff. And I think they'll feel a lot more secure seeing that. Um, I mean, I went to see a, a, a gig. It was just a, a, the Brit Pink Floyd in Clearwater here last week. And they had kind of airport screening things, which they wouldn't have had at previous concerts. And I'm fine by that. If you have to arrive at a gig 15, 20 minutes earlier for your own safety, then do it. But, but it has to be business as usual, tragic as it is. I mean, the London thing happened a week later. You know, the kind of people in the van just mowing people down and running at them with knives. It, you know, it can happen in a supermarket. It's the world we live in. We've got a, a great guest with us today. He joins us here on our broadcast. Uh, respected uh, music promoter and... Uh, and Tony, this this book, Let the Good Times Roll, amazing, amazing read. Tell me a little bit about the writing process for the book. Well, the funny thing is, when I first wrote my first book, which albeit was seven or eight years ago, I wrote a book to shut everybody up. And I wrote it in three months because everybody said, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I, it got so persistent that I kind of just did it. Um, and then I went out and did some speaking gigs around it and stuff. And um, it's great, really, because I think you have to, you know, I'm 64 next week, and you two who I worked with in the early days very kindly playing in Tampa on my birthday, which I was thought was most considerate. So I'm kind of like, it's great to go back and, and appreciate growing up in those times and the lessons that you did learn. And like I said, put those lessons in a, in a kind of understandable way. Because I think when people listen to mistakes and opportunities and stuff which benefit corporate America and everything, when it involves famous people, they, they listen to it differently and there was a line in my book that said you know when I first met Simon Cowell he was 30 he'd been bankrupt twice and he was living with his parents which is kind of like oh my god you know anybody thinks they're having a hard time kind of the most famous man in the world you know was kind of all but destitute um so it's inspirational I think and I think that um you know there's a, there's an enormous amount you can learn from bands like you two because for, for as long as most people have been alive James they've been famous but, you know, when you've seen him play to 11 people in a pub in Manchester, three of those people were you, with you, you know, it, it's kind of, it, those people come from somewhere. So that, that inspires musicians, hopefully, to pick up guitars and stuff. And also people to see a, a, an inside look into how things, I mean, there's no sex, drugs, or rock and roll, because that's kind of, you know, that's boring. I mean, that's kind of what people <laughs> would probably expect. I'd yes. rather write something kind of that was more... Uh, stuff that, like I say, I keep using the word inspire, but but uh, I think you know everybody has a story, and I think the thing with artists, if you kind of get into the meat of them, I'm going to, like I say, be doing a podcast much of the same thing, where it's a behind the scenes look at what made those people who they are, and having the the great fortune of working with an artist like David Bowie, who was so far ahead of the pack in everything, even being the first artist to release a record on the internet. Um, and seeing what the internet was going to do for the record industry way before anybody in the music business. Um, so kind of, you know, learning from people like that and, and realising that, you know, got a superstar on the one hand who's been around for five decades, who won't be now, but it's important that his legacy lives on because, like I said before, people like him won't live ever again. You know, the, the, I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I don't know we'll be inducting Justin Bieber into the Hall of Fame in 20 years. It's a different business. It's kind of, we live in an age of instant gratification. I mean, people listen to things on devices and 
Can you imagine anybody sitting down and listening to, a, to an album and turning it over? <laughs> if you could find a record store to get one from, actually. I mean, I know times change, but it was an important part of my, um, my youth music. And uh, in my own little way, if I can kind of, you know, nudge people into kind of checking some of that stuff out. But, but a lot of those heritage bands, as they call them now, um, like the Floyds and the Zeppelins and the Led Zeppelins and the, and the Beatles and people can revisit music through their parents and even grandparents' record collection. Fantastic. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. He joins us on our broadcast, Tony Michaelettis, and uh, he is a music industry professional, former music promoter, and he's with us today here on iHeartRadio and AMFM247.com. Now, you brought up U2. Um... There, there, there seems to be uh, you, you, you have been involved uh, with uh, a, a lot of things going with you too. Um, kind of give, give us some details here on uh, on the good stories and some of the bad stories and some of the different things we've heard about you uh, two over the years. Well, the the, 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 the thing about you two is that they're almost kind of the classic case study in, in how to make a band work because. It, it's very easy to kind of sit there and try and plan your future and have everything fall apart when the money comes in. But they were smart enough as kids to sit down and decide that they were going to split the publishing between each other. Because a lot of the times that comes to like a head when you start making money and it's the singer and the guitar player who write the songs that get more than the other two. And then the rest is history, end of the band. But they actually, as kids, thought of the business of U2 because they always had this enormous belief in themselves that they would make it, not in an arrogant kind of, you know, um, conceited, cocky way or whatever, but just they felt that they could be the biggest band in the world. And, and they just worked so hard. I mean, I can go back to the days where I would trawl them around the UK. This is kind of 1980 onwards. Um, in fact, I did a gig last week, and it was 37 years to the day, the first time I saw them, third on the bill. Um, in, a, in a polytechnic, which is like a university bar in Manchester. And that was what kind of tempted, I'd just been working with Genesis and Peter Gabriel, and that's what tempted me to go back to Island Records. This kind of band that had like, you know, they were a bit rough and ready, which bands should be at that stage, with some okay songs and some better than others, and a very charismatic singer. And then kind of you go home and you start thinking about it, and then, listen, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of bands I've worked with that you've never heard of, James, but that's the law of averages. But when it comes to a band like U2, I mean, there's no band alive that has the same lineup from day one as they have now. Nobody has that. So that's kind of historic on the one hand. And then the other thing is they have the same record label, the same publisher. I mean, their manager, Paul McGuinness, had managed them since before they had a record deal. Um, he just retired 35 years ago, but I think he was kind of, you know, Jupiter. <laughs> I mean, he kind of, you know, he's mid-60s and it was, you know, my work is done. But he was kind of relentless in, in, in the support and the belief of the band. But they've also kind of, um, they've also kind of learned their trade. I mean, they've made their mistakes. They've taken their opportunities. I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember stuff like Live Aid, but, I mean, Bono kind of blew it on the day because he went and dragged the girl from the crowd and pulled her out and started kind of slow dancing with her on the stage. And the band couldn't even see him because he'd taken, like, four or five steps down onto the lower level of the, of the um, walkway on the stage. Um, and they didn't know what was happening because every band had 15 minutes to play and three numbers. And Bad, which was the second song, went on for about seven minutes. And then the 
the plug literally got pulled. They weren't able to do the last song, which was a song called Pride. And we just started to get it on the radio and it became a top 40 hit. And when you've got a global audience of 1.4 billion, even though all the artists provided their services for free, so to speak, it's not a bad promotional outlet to play to an audience like that. And they didn't get a chance to do it. And then when they came off stage, I mean, Bono was so close to being sacked that day. Nobody would talk to him. He disappeared to the south of Ireland to stay with a friend. Their manager, Paul McGuinness, went to France, um, furious with him, and, uh, you know, just to get a break. Because um, they thought they'd really blown the best opportunity they had. And then he went to get a copy of the paper, La Parisienne, the next day. And on the front cover was how Freddie Mercury and Queen and U2 stole the show. And from that moment on, U2 propelled themselves into the stratosphere. They had four albums. They had all their albums went into the top 40 within like six days. And that was, the, that was a kind of a, a complete mistake turning into a golden opportunity. So those kinds of things are... I think are really important for people in all walks of life to understand about we live in an age of, you know, entrepreneurs and everything where people take chances. And, and they were in a position where they could have just lost it all, even to the extent of splitting up. It was that extreme. But you don't see that. So kind of, like I say, I like to kind of tell those stories. And um, that's happened quite quite a lot through the years. I mean, there's uh, it, it's quite... Um, it's quite a machine to keep going for this length of time because those tours take like over a year in planning. Um, and they've even had, I mean, the, their tour manager for the last 30 years sadly passed away um, about 18 months ago in a hotel in LA. And he was kind of late 60s, still on the road with a band and he just had a heart attack. So U2 is kind of a, almost like a religion, a way of life. Um, and they give so many people so much pleasure. Heck of a deal. We've got a, a great guest with us today. He joins us live, Tony, Tony Michaelettis. He is a music industry insider, former music promoter. He is a notable speaker. He's a best-selling author with Insights from the Engine Room, and TonyMichaelettis.com is the official website. And uh, uh, Tony, th- th- there's also, over the years, you've, you've worked with a, a lot of folks. You, you mentioned earlier uh, Simon Cowell, you too. Um, to tell us a little bit about uh, the American Idol phenomenon, how you, uh, how you were, were involved in that and kind of seen some of the different things going on from the outside with that. Interesting thing with um, with having seen that is I worked with Simon Fuller, who was the creator of American Idol, who managed Annie Lennox, and Annie Lennox is another artist I represented. So yeah. I knew Simon, and I used Simon Cowell as well because he worked for BMG, and he was um, he had a small label that he was putting stuff out through the major BMG, but not having much success. And then all of a sudden he went from kind of Arista, which was one side of the building, to RCA Records. Um, and had phenomenal success with one act, which was a couple of guys who were on a peak viewing Saturday night drama um, on the TV in the UK, persuaded them to do a cover version of the Righteous Brothers, I've lost that loving feeling, to the extent of one of them even getting a restraining order against them because he was throwing them like 10 times a day. Um, and that one act that he signed turned BMG from a loss into a profit that year. They became the largest artist they had in Europe. Um, but what happened with American Idol is, is the forerunner of it started as a thing called Pop Idol in the UK. There was a girl that I worked with at, um, at RCA Records, was one of, the, one of the judges. Simon was another. 
but they were both people from BMG. Um, and then a guy called Pete Waterman, who was the person who had um, put Kylie Minogue in a lot of pop records of the 90s, had huge success in the UK. And that's how it started. And then the interesting thing with that, James, was um, Simon Fuller took it to America and nobody wanted it. And it, 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 um, Elizabeth Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's daughter, um, kind of got it and was the only person to even offer them a deal. And that became the show that changed the way Americans watch TV. It was the largest rating show in the history of television in America, you know, a show that nobody wanted. Um, I mean, nobody wanted to sign the Beatles, believe it or not. So those things do happen. But the interesting thing, when, they, when Simon Fuller brought it to America on Fox, Simon Cowell was convinced that he wouldn't work on there. It's just, you know, like, speaking as an Englishman, I've always thought there's, there's something about Americans that like British people insulting them. So I kind of understood the Cowell thing. Um, and, of course, the show kind of became massive because of Simon Cowell. Because people kind of tuned in wondering what he was going to say and what outrageous comments he would make. But um, it was Simon Fuller's idea to put him on television. He really had to coerce him into doing it. And, of course, the rest is history because, I mean, American Idol became um, a phenomenon. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, because the executive producer of, of that whole Fremantle thing, which is American Idol now, Simon Fuller sold his companies at that. Um, she was a researcher in Manchester, um, 35 years ago when I was kind of learning my trade. It's funny how these people kind of reappear in the weirdest way. But yeah, Carol's done incredibly well. And um, But the, the thing with what they do now, it, that also coincided with me emigrating because a lot of what happened in the music industry was I could see what was coming. I mean, I had quite a large operation with everything that went with it, a large overhead, you know, rent, staff, company cars. And it was never going to be like it had been. So I kind of reinvented myself and I did my David Bowie, my Ziggy Stardust, and I came out here um, because it, it, it became kind of instant gratification with American Idol. It was kind of, you put people on television and then they eventually get a winner and that person may or may not have a career. I mean, the two biggest artists on American Idol, Kelly Clarkson and Carrie, Under, Carrie Underwood, came out of two of the four first winners. Um, and they had 15 series, and much as programs like The Voice and stuff are good, they don't kind of create stars, I don't think. Um, so it's interesting to see how it will go. I mean, um, uh, it's a, it, 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 I come from the school of artist development, where I mean, it took me two and a half years to get you two on the radio. Um, I got them their first radio and television. Um, but you did literally have to hawk them around the country, take them into every radio station, no matter how small it was, to do whatever interview you could um, to get them noticed. And then, you know, interviews with Bon on the Edge that went out on a Tuesday night at midnight or something. You know? um, it's easy to say that, like, you look at them now, but everybody kind of starts somewhere. And, and what was real blood, sweat and tears on their part had a lot to do um, I used to say to them, like, I can get you in here because of who I know, but only you can get yourself back in here because of who you are. Because then the yes. DJs would call me up and say, oh, great guys, Tony, bring them back anytime, you know. Well, see, and, and, and I love that quote that you just said. That That is fantastic. That is that is basically the encapsulation of uh, of, of music. My friend, that 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 is amazing. We've got uh, Tony Michaeletti's with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. Now, you mentioned working with Annie Lennox, working with Genesis. Uh, uh, 
I know that uh, there's a lot of people going going out on tour. There's you know there's there's all sorts of bands getting back together because there's there's dollar signs out there. Do you ever yeah. see a day where Genesis gets back together with Peter Gabriel and makes makes a run? <laughs> that was I've never had that question, but that's quite interesting, James. Yeah, I don't know really. Um, I think it would. If they did, bands like that who kind of don't have to get together um, would do it maybe for a cause. I mean, Led Zeppelin got together once, um, oh, 25 years after the event, although it's not the same lineup because the drummer John Bonham's dead. But the, the, the founder of the record label, Atlantic, um, who signed Led Zeppelin, died, and they reformed, um, and the internet went down. Um, and they've never formed since because there was such a demand for tickets. But what I'm saying is Led Zeppelin came together for an event which was a tribute to Ahmed Ertigan. Um, if, if Peter Gabriel is a great kind of, you know, um, philanthropist in every way, that, that you know, everything that he does. So I think if there was a cause that, that got them onto a stage that was something they believed in, it, it might be a possibility. It's not like they don't speak to each other. It's just that musically they kind of drifted apart i mean phil collins also had a hugely successful um solo career which doesn't always happen when you know one guy leaves a band um it's always kind of you know the, the main i mean robert plant wasn't led zeppelin you know ian gillen wasn't deep purple they go and have solo careers but the sum is always greater than the parts i think but phil collins had phenomenal international success but Phil's an all-round all good guy, so he's moved to Miami to, to back with his ex-wife now, and, um, uh, and and Genesis did reform, but it wasn't Genesis with Peter Gabriel. I mean, we are talking kind of late 60s Genesis, what you're talking about with Gabriel, because his first hit was, was um, Salisbury Hill and stuff, and he had an amazing career, but he's a different type of artist. I mean, for instance, I never got into that whole... I know I worked with him, but only around 1980. Um, I was never into that whole English art school stuff. It kind of began and ended with Bowie. So I wasn't kind of into ELP and Nice and Genesis and stuff. I was more into kind of the, the rock stuff. Um, but Peter Gabriel was an incredible kind of artist on his own. And when I worked with him and went to see him live, his shows were great. And he's made some phenomenal records over the years. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of Gabriel, but... Genesis are fine, and, and you know there's 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 a market for them, obviously. But um, in answer to your question, it's kind of a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Never say never. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> for the money, they've got plenty of money. <laughs> well, and 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 the, see the, the thing with the, sorry, James. The thing with that is, I went to my first um, to see my first tribute band, like I said last week, the Brit Floyd, and there were two thousand people there, and. I'd actually seen the original Pink Floyd four times, three times, so I didn't want to be a bit of a kind of, you know, party pooper, so to speak, because the people who were there were, were saying, oh, I saw them seven times and this and that. But for a lot of people, they won't ever see the Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin, so they kind of have to go second best. There's a massive market in tribute bands who go out. I mean, there's an Australian Pink Floyd and a Brit Pink Floyd now. And, and I said to my girlfriend, jokingly, I said, well, let's go and get the the, um, the cheapest seats. So we got like the $35 seats at the back. I said, why would you want to look at a bunch of ugly blokes that you wouldn't recognize in the supermarket? It's not <laughs> a big I love that. I, mean, I know it's hilarious, but it's true. So we sat at the back and we got the whole experience of the light show and the sound. 
and there was four faceless guys on uh, well there was nine with the backing singers but they're faceless they're not the Pink Floyd why do you need to sit at the front and look at them <laughs> so it was a good night out but I mean I'm a, I, I kind of a bit of a snob really because I've seen everybody who kind of ever, ever meant anything to me in, in small seaters so even though I'm going to see you 2 next week I'm, I'm not excited because I mean there's like huge screens so it's you see them, you watch them on the screen and you know it's you too because it says it on the ticket. Because um, 20,000 people in the shed is, is not my idea of um, live music. But <laughs> yes. I didn't say to myself, yes. I don't want to be a party group, but like I say, I'm just being honest with you. you know. Now, uh, you mentioned tribute bands and, 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 and some of these. So this is a phenomenon. That is amazing. That uh, there is a there is a band, and they have been called uh, the American Led Zeppelin. They're called Get the Lead Out, and they have been all over the place. And they don't they don't like dress up or, or do anything like that. They just they they just play Led Zeppelin music. Um, a lot of times, people have have said that you know, for instance, with them that. They would actually almost enjoy listening to them than the original. Um, what, what, what do you make of some of the, some of those those comments? Would people say things like that? Well, I think each to their own, James. I mean, I'm, I don't kind of you know I don't mind that. I mean, whatever gives you pleasure. I mean, as long as you kind of uh, as long as you kind of like something, I'm I'm fine with that. But the thing is, um, you mentioned the Zeppelin tribute band, Jason Bonham, who was John Bonham's son has been going out playing Led Zeppelin songs and drumming with the band for longer than his dad was in Led Zeppelin. Um, and they go out and they do a Zeppelin set and they've been doing it for like 15 years or something. Um, and they, a friend of mine, and he's like early 50s, he kind of went to see them in LA and he posted songs on Facebook which were off the first Zeppelin album. Um, and he loved them. So there's a massive market for people... I think it's a great way for people, um, maybe younger people, to get into a band because maybe they'll go along with their parents, you know. It becomes kind of a family event. Um, and it's a great living for these people because, like I say, they, they go out and they sell out floors. And let's face it, you can't get the real thing, so why not deal with second best? Whoever came up with the idea with, with tribute bands is a genius because um, they kind of... The funny story I've got here for you is... <laughs> I mean, the, the kind of archetypal band that will go on forever is the Rolling Stones. Yes. You know, the great story that, that, that Mick Jagger goes out to Paris before a Stones tour to watch a tribute band because the guy who sings the songs, the Jagger in the tribute band, knows the moves better than he does now. <laughs> <laughs> now that is awesome. That is, that so is he fantastic. Watches, he goes and watches them and he makes some notes and probably videos them on his iPhone and takes it on rehearses it and then takes the Stones on the road. He's got to be like 74 now, Jagger. He's not doing bad. But it's funny, isn't it? Some of these people kind of... Um, I mean, Elton John's another one. I, mean, I was reading something in an English newspaper the other day that he's can't stop touring. He's like 72 now. It's made him ill because he can't go through the schedule that somebody like that has to do, even though you're nipping on and off private planes. Um, but he can't take that bug out of him of touring. He's been doing it for over 50 years, and he doesn't have to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, music is kind of, um, it kind of gets in your blood and, and you can't, you can't stop it. McCartney's playing here next week, I think. Um, he's another one, 75, and it's almost like they kind of get their bus passes and 
and uh, pensions, and away they go out on the road. Well, and see, that's the thing. We, we, we've got a, a great guest with us today. Tony, Tony Michaelettis joins us, music industry professional, and uh, he, is, he has been uh, a top music promoter. He's been all over the place, and uh, he joins us live here on iHeartRadio and AMFM247.com. Now, um, why, why do you think that it is so hard for some of these guys? It, it can't be the paycheck because these guys, a lot of these guys have, have saved their money. They've put their money away. Why is it that, that some of them just, they just can't stop performing and touring? Why is that? Well, you'd have to ask them. I mean, it, it, like I said, it gets in their blood. And I don't think they know a life kind of without it. That's why some of them... There's there's kind of two types, the way I see it. There's people like Springsteen, who, again, is the archetypal, you know, definitive role model. I mean, if ever you wanted to teach corporate America how to keep your staff, I mean, here's a guy who's had the same lineup for 40 years, and the only two have left the band that passed away. So, you know, he's the boss, but he keeps just... He loves what he does. And I think that translates to the audience. When you watch somebody, and he still plays for three hours and the guy's like 66 now or something, it's in their blood, and they kind, of, they kind of get a rush on stage that you can't experience, I think, unless you've done it. And I think they kind of need it, not in an egotistical way around it, but they kind of, they're entertainers. I mean, if you look back to the days of the Sinatras and stuff, they did it, and they did it in a different way. But you give an audience so much pleasure but you get that pleasure yourself. And, and we all love seeing an artist on stage, I think, James, who loves what they're doing. So I kind of, I kind of understand it because there's, there's kind of there's, there's that. They don't know any other life. And I think if they went home, uh, I mean, they'd be a dead ring a case for something like dementia if they weren't touring because everything would stop. They kind of need to be active because they, if you're in a band, you don't tend to join a band in your 30s. You tend to join in a band in your teens and the ones that make it don't make it until they're into probably their twenties or something. If they, if they do it the, the proper way, which is kind of just slowly improving and getting better and better. I mean, I'm talking pretty much of what used to be, I suppose. Um, and then when you get to that level of success, there's always somebody coming up behind you. So you have to keep the momentum going. I mean, bands are all about kind of reinvention and, and keeping ahead of the pack, so to speak. And that kind of is probably a 20-year journey. And then when you get to, like, in your 40s or something, I don't think, because the drug's in you, so to speak, that you can get out because, it's, well, this is what I do. I mean, some people go to factories and work there all their life. Because yes. Because that's their job. You're um, correct. And I think it's probably pretty... It's, pre it's probably pretty well paid, and I think, you know, for a lot of them, I mean, if they're touring and they can get... Because there's the other spin-offs now. They might not sell records, but merchandise and stuff, and, and um, you can make a decent living from live work because concerts aren't cheap. I don't know how long that'll last, but, you know, I mean, you can spend 200 bucks, too, if you're going to see a kind of mediocre band. I mean, I, <laughs> some of the prices on my tickets are hilarious. I put one on... I posted one on... Um, uh, Facebook yesterday actually because it was um, 44 years uh, 43 years since I saw David Bowie um, so I posted the ticket on Facebook and people made lots of comments and things I look at the price and it's kind of barely $2 <laughs> that's amazing that is amazing 
<laughs> I probably annoyed yeah, a lot awesome. of people thinking, oh no, that cost me out to mortgage my house to go and see that band, you know. <laughs> That is fantastic. We've got a, a great guest with us today. Tony Michaeletti joins us here in our broadcast, and uh, he's a top music promoter, and uh, he's with us today here on iHeartRadio and AMFM247.com. Well, your book, uh, you've, you've, you've done a heck of a lot with the book. Who's your target audience uh, that you wrote the book for? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, James. I'll tell you what. Um, I, don't, I don't like preaching to the converted. I kind of In my own little way, I like to do what kind of my heroes did, you know, which is kind of reinvent myself. I want to try and, again, it sounds a little pretentious, but, you know, if I can kind of make a difference to one person that might be able to go and source out some of the music that I grew up on. I mean, I did the radio show back in the UK on the biggest station outside of London for like 12 and a half years. And the only reason I got it was when the DJ left to go to the national station, I complained first and foremost, because he was the guy that was doing my U2 interviews with all those up and coming artists. Two, I was from Manchester, which was, which had always been a, a, a breeding ground for bands. He, Graham Nash was from Manchester, you know, the, um, the Joy Division, the New Orders, the Smiths, the Oasis, Simply Red. There's always been bands from Manchester. I was saying, why can't you do something? You've got a radio station 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Can't you find three hours once a week to play decent music? Um, so the guy said to me, why don't you do it? So I thought, right, I will do it. I've never done a mobile disco or a bar mitzvah or a wedding in my life. And I was broadcasting at the largest station outside of London. But the thing was, I just kind of brought my record collection in. And it was kind of like, I don't actually use the word educate, but yes, educate people into kind of... I did that with you too. I mean, for fear of name dropping, I mean, they would come out of my house and I'd sit down and play Neil Young and Bob Dylan records and Van Morrison because they were kind of a few years younger and I had a better record collection. So I'd show them like a lot of the artists that they ended up going on stage with them because I, I love doing things like that. So the thing is with... Um, what was your question? <laughs> no, I no, I, 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 I love this. I love this. This is awesome. It, it, it was like um, I, no. What what what? Uh, the thing is with the book and everything, and, and what I'm doing now. It's it's if you can make a difference to one person's life. Say we're talking here. One listener from your show goes away and gets curious about Led Zeppelin or you two because of what we've been talking about. They say, well, I, I know who they are because my dad or my mum's got the records or something like that. You know, but I have so many stories that kind of relate to artists that I grew up on before I was in the music business. You know, I mean, here's a great one for you about David Bowie. I went to see him, like, in the late 60s. I'd ducked out of school early with my girlfriend. And we went to this place called the Magic Village. So you get an idea of the times we're talking about. And... Um, there was a band on, um, and, it, and, and um, David Bowie was playing. This was around Space Oddity. Um, and he was doing a gig with Tyrannosaurus Rex, Mark Boland, who's passed away since the next day. And he turns up there, and my girlfriend, she was, she was out of cigarettes, so I went down the road to get her some cigarettes. So David Bowie's outside. This is 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, uh, he starts chatting her up, you know, and I'm, I'm out there, come back, and... Um, you know, she, 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 he says to her, would you like to come in for a drink? And, and she said, no, thanks, I'm with someone. So <laughs> she flew David Bowie out for me, you know. Anyway, that night he went inside and played in the bar to 30 people. Um, and we'd actually gone home because we, we were hungry. We went and got a kebab and went home. So, and um, the other David Bowie story I've got is when I was 18, 
and I was at college, I asked this girl out, and I'd just bought Ziggy Stardust. It was 1972. And um, I was really pleased. I was getting into Bowie and everything. I asked this girl out. She was like the hot chick in class, you know. So I go around to pick her up on a Saturday. And in those days, their mother used to throw you in the, in the, in the living room while they were upstairs getting ready. And like the nerd that I was, I would rifle through a record collection. And I pulled out Honky Dory. I thought, oh, my God, I'm taking this girl out for the first night. She's got the album before the one I've just bought. So naturally, I married her and had two kids with her. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that 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 is fantastic. That is amazing. I, let me tell it. Let me tell you this, James. Which is yes, go romantic. keep going, my friend. The, the hope, the hopeless romantic side of it. I ended up working with people whose records I bought as a kid. I went to see David Bowie in the early seventies, around that period, and was a fan forever. And then twenty-five years later, I'm sitting down like we are, but not in the same room. In the same room, talking. And working with him on the road, I bought traffic records in the sixties, and I worked with Steve Winwood. I mean, that doesn't happen to a kid from the north of England. So I'm, I'm entitled to my storytelling romanticism about it because it is my life, and there's nothing like music to take you back to a time and a place, and invariably with a person. I mean, you know, we we I remember clearly where I was when John Lennon died. You know, um, in the same way that people do when Kennedy was assassinated and stuff. It, and if you're into sport or whatever, I mean, a goal does not remind you of a time and a person in the way that music does. So there is an incredibly kind of, um, you know, important part of music. And if we go back to the original conversation about the Manchester concerts and stuff, it's incredible that a 23-year-old girl made that happen because really she was incredibly moved by it. She's even had a tattoo with a B on, which is the Mancunian symbol to, to remember this horrible event. Um, and the way she rallied round and a bunch of people giving all their services for free, they worked solidly day and night for seven days, and created an event which will be a part of history. And I was incredibly proud, as a Mancunian, you know, for what happened. Um, I know some of the people that kind of organised it, because they've been organising and putting concerts on for forever. Um, but we were all kind of shocked beyond belief when you saw that photograph, the first one they announced dead, that little eight-year-old girl you know and it moves everybody but i think in the completely opposite way the tears came out from the from the concert barely two weeks after the event which kind of you know made people realize how important music musicians and artists and a, and a world coming together and it wasn't a, i mean live aid was a bunch of older artists these were kind of katie perry and Justin Bieber and, and, you know, and they got a Coldplay. They got a whole bunch of people to, to turn out and, and do their bit. And they all had stuff to say and everything. And it, it does make you feel that, you know, I mean, I remember Bono, they, you two were on the road, and he, he, he went on the Jimmy Kimmel show and he said, um, he said you know, there, there's, an, there, there's incredible resilience in Manchester. Trust me, I know, you know, because he knows a lot of He's been there a lot of times and stuff. And you do need people like that who have the power of, of like a world stage to make statements like that because he's actually saying to the kids, you know, this won't stop anything. They win if we don't go out and play as artists and you come as people. And that's kind of, you know, that's all about the spirit that is music. And I don't think that will ever die. And, and really, to quote... Um, Don McLean, that will be the day that music dies because <laughs> if that happens, 
you, you know, you can't pick that up. And really, I mean, it's great that you want to talk to me about that because you have to do it, I have to do it, and the people that are listening have to rally around. Otherwise, we're wasting a bit of your airtime, you know, to, to, to try and convince people that, um, horrific as it sounds, we, we overcome obstacles like that. Obstacles probably the wrong word, but tragedies. Um, and sadly, there'll be something else somewhere in some city in the world at some time. We hope not for a long time, but you are you are completely correct, my friend. Uh, we've got a, a great guest with us today. I uh, have enjoyed this interview. I definitely want to have you back. Thanks for uh, being with us today, my friend. My Thanks for coming on. Anytime. My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, and thank you for your time. Definitely. Thank you, Tony, and uh, we will be in touch. Thank you, sir. Okay, James. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. That is Tony Micheletti's here on our big broadcast, the incredible Tony Micheletti's. We're going to take a break and come back with more here on our program. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.